all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. May is Skin Cancer Awareness Month, and summer is right around the corner. And so today we are going to be talking about that. We're going to talk about um, the different types of skin cancers and how we prevent that. And then we're going to just talk skin and any questions that you may have. So if you have any questions or comments, you can always send us an email as well to kids at mpbonline.org. So we have a couple of dermatologists on with us today. Um, One's running a little late because she was busy at clinic this morning, but she's going to be here in just a little bit. But um, we have Dr. Allison Cruz with us and then Dr. Chelsea Mockby. She is on her way. Um, They are dermatologists at UMC. And so they do skin cancer. They do anything and everything. Acne, I feel like that's always a big question, too. Um, And we can just talk about some regular routine skincare and sunscreen and different things like that, too. So good morning, Dr. Cruz. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for coming on. I feel like the skin is always a big topic. Everybody always has questions for the dermatologist. Yes, always. I probably get at least one text message a day from a friend with a picture of a rash or a lesion or something. I'm pretty sure I've texted you and Chelsea both too, so I apologize for that. (laughs) No, it's totally fine. Um, Okay, so let's start by just telling us what y'all do. Y'all have um, a couple of different clinics at UMC, so can you just tell us once like where y'all are located and what are some of the different things that y'all do in clinic yeah so uh dr motby and i both work at face and skin center it's a umc clinic um it is in ridgeland at the township uh we have several dermatologists that work in that clinic we are on the second floor of our building um we also have clinic space on the first floor that's where our mose surgeon dr black is located Um, And we also have some other general dermatologic providers that work there as well. And then we also have a clinic out in Floyd at the Grants Ferry Multispecialty Clinic. So we we have three different locations um, in addition to uh, doing some pediatric clinics at uh, Sanderson on the main campus. Gotcha. Uh, Looks like we have a caller, so we'll jump to the lines real quick before we get into skin cancer. Uh, Good morning, Ms. Barbara. What's going on this morning? Oh, well, I want to ask the question that I heard y'all talking about last week uh, about Benadryl, way we understood it, that uh, you was talking about it causing dementia. So 
uh, we take Benadryl, so I was wondering about that. Yeah, so there's been some recent new information coming out about that, that um, particularly Benadryl. I haven't seen anything about some of the other antihistamines, like the Zyrtec and the Allegra that Dr. Gro- <coughs> excuse me, Dr. Grogan had mentioned. Um, all I've mostly seen is Benadryl, uh, which is diphenhydramine. Um, but long-term use of that can definitely lead to um, increased risk of dementia and memory problems, which we kind of already knew, honestly. Yeah. We never really recommended um, the older you get taking Benadryl, but now there's actually has been a proven link uh, related to memory problems and dementia related to the diphenhydramine. Now, just taking it here and there once or twice every now and then, that's not a problem. This is more long-term use. So the people that are taking Benadryl at night to sleep, um, or if you're taking Benadryl every day for your allergies, those are the people that we're concerned about having this link. And it's as you get a little bit older, too. Okay, well, uh, how often, why, if you took it once, twice a week, would that be too much? No, ma'am, I think that's probably fine. I think this is more related to the people that take the sleep aids every night because pretty much every mm-hmm. over-the-counter sleep aid has Benadryl in it. And so this mm-hmm. is more related to those people who are taking that every night. Mm-hmm. Well, I just mainly take it because uh, I have more trouble. My nose stopping up at night, you know, but it I, it don't seem to make me that sleepy anymore or anything like that. Yeah. Well, it used to when I was younger, but it changed after I got so, you know, older, and it don't make me, like, sleepy anymore. Yeah, so the... I think one of the main reasons the Benadryl does, as opposed to like the Zyrtec or Allegra, while those are better options. So the Benadryl is an old antihistamine, and it has more anticholinergic effects. And that's just a fancy term for one of the the hormones and different neurotransmitters and things that are in your brain. Um, and so we've, we've always known that it had the most anticholinergic effects, as opposed to some of the other antihistamines. And I think that is probably why that one is more linked to it than some of the other ones are, because a lot of our memory and dementia medicines work on that um, choline receptor. So that's why Benadryl in particular. So if you still have problems, I would recommend doing maybe some Zyrtec or some Allegra. And I think that will still help your symptoms, but then you won't even have to worry about that connection. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I just wanted to, you know, hear you talk on it a little more. I didn't hear it as well as my husband did, and he heard it, and he told me that. But I appreciate it, and I enjoy your program. Yes, ma'am. Well, thank you so much for calling. We appreciate it. Yeah, so hopefully the Zyrtec and Allegra, those are the two main ones that our allergists like. And those are just the newer um, antihistamines. And Allegra in particular, I'm not sure if you heard this part too, Barbara. Um, Dr. Gregan mentioned it does not cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, so you really don't get those side effects as opposed to Benadryl and some of the other ones, some of the older antihistamines. So, But thanks for calling. So let's talk about skin cancer, because I feel like that is such a common thing. Um, Everybody always goes to melanoma, because that's kind of the big scary one Mm -hmm. that we think about. Mm -hmm. But there's several other little skin cancers that you can get, um, and pretty much all of them are related to the sun. Yeah, yeah. So, um, gosh, I think that the data says that one in five Americans will be diagnosed with skin cancer at some point in their life. Um, the majority of those, about 90%, are directly r- related to UV damage from the sun. Um, there are several different types of skin cancer. So like you said, you know, melanoma is the, the common one that 
you know, most people have heard of. Everybody knows about melanoma. And it is one of the more scary types of skin cancer because it does have the potential to metastasize to other areas um, and can lead to death related to that. The more common types of skin cancer that we see, we tend to classify those as non-melanoma skin cancer. And so those are your basal cell skin cancers and your squamous cell skin cancers, which, again, are are most commonly related to the sun. Um, We see those in all ages. So basal cell skin cancer, you can be at risk for that if you've had just one bad blistering sunburn in your life. And so it is more closely related to short, intense burst of sunlight. And so we um, can see those in younger patients. I've had patients in their 20s and 30s that were diagnosed with basal cell skin cancer. Um, those can look like a, a pimple or some kind of uh, pink lesion on your skin that's not healing. That That's always a warning sign. Um, squamous cell skin cancer, we do tend to see those more in older individuals, and that's um, more typically related to cumulative sun exposure, so sun that you've maybe gotten over the course of your entire life. Um, but those are the two most common types of skin cancer that we see. In, um, and like you said, it is prevalent. Skin cancer as a whole um, is more common than any other type of skin cancer in all other types of skin or all other types of cancer combined. Yeah. When you were mentioning the that it, it you have like a little spot that maybe won't heal up. That's what I always tell my patients. I'm like, if you have a spot on your skin or a spot in your mouth that won't heal up, it probably needs to be taken off and Absolutely. see what it is. Because probably majority of the time that's going to be some kind of either yeah. skin cancer or pre-skin cancer. Same thing with a lesion in your mouth. If it doesn't heal, the skin and the mouth both heal pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if they're not healing up, something else is going on. And right. So. And, uh, um, you know, we... we see patients all the time that will come in for just one concerning lesion. And a lot of times it ends up being something benign or nothing to worry about, but I always tell patients that I'd rather them come in and have us look at it and, and, you know, it'd be totally fine. They're never wasting our time as opposed to letting something sit and kind of grow and potentially spread over the course of months to years. Right. So Dr. Monkby made it. Thank you so much for coming. I know you've had a hectic morning, (laughs) so we appreciate you taking the time to come. Yeah, glad to be here. Sorry I was a little late. So before the break, we just kind of did a quick little introduction of the main types of skin cancer we see. Um, And then now we're going to talk about what are some things that you should be looking for. We kind of already mentioned if you have like a little raised red spot or any area on your skin um, that doesn't seem to be healing, that is definitely something to be looking for. Could y'all give us any tips on what are some other things that you should be looking for for potential skin cancers? Yeah, so um, so the non-melanoma type skin cancers, which are the most common, those are the ones that usually present with the um, kind of the bumps that won't heal um, or kind of the bleeding, the bleeding um, spots. The other type um, category, you know, that's probably the, the scarier type are the, um, the melanoma type skin cancers, which are thankfully they are more rare, but um, but they are. Um, more dangerous most of the time. So those are ones that we definitely want to be looking out for. So um, we we usually say anytime that you have a mole or like a dark spot that you feel like is changing or growing, that's always a reason to um, to get it checked out. Also, um, if you have a mole that's like a new mole that you've noticed that's like itching or, you know, um, feels like painful, that's something that's odd and really... Um, you know, not usually normal for a mole. So those are also things that we want to know about. And then 
we have, you know, the general guidelines we give patients. Usually we, we call it the ABCs of melanoma, just some kind of um, easy tips to follow just for kind of checking your moles at home. So um, A stands for asymmetry. So if you look at the um, if you look at the mole and like one half of it looks different from the other half, that's usually um not a good sign. And then border. So if the border of the mole is irregular, um, meaning like not like a you know smooth border, that can be concerning. And then C is color. So if it has multiple colors within the lesion, um, that's also something that we like to get checked out. So if it's like two shades of brown, that may be fine. But like if you notice it's like red, brown, and black, like that's that's not a good sign. So um and then D is diameter, which is, um, we say, you know, like six millimeters, but honestly, more important than diameter really is evolution. So the six millimeters is like in a pencil eraser kind of size. But but like I said, really, the more important one of that is evolution, which is like, is it changing? So is it growing? So if you see that it's progressively getting bigger, um, that's something that, you, you know, you want to get checked out sooner than later. And of course, there are um, there are a lot of benign type lesions that can look a lot like moles. Um, so, you know, it may be that you come in and we say, "Oh, that's not actually a mole. It looks a lot like a mole, but it's actually totally fine." So, and that's always good. And we we um, like Dr. Cruz said before, like we never we never mind. Like you're never wasting our time. We're always you know happy to check. That's our job. And um, and it's you know I always tell my patients, it's my job, not your job, to be able to tell you if it's okay. So um, so don't ever you know feel bad for coming in and it being fine. So it's all always um you know early detection of those type skin cancers is is always with the goal um because they're very treatable you know even the melanomas are very treatable if we can catch them early so that's always um that's always the goal we have got a caller on the line so we can jump to the lines craig and biloxi good morning craig what's going on yeah good morning uh i was wondering if i got three questions uh let me shoot them all out are there any internal uh, maladies that are common that will show up on their skin? Uh, let me shoot them all out. And what would be a good shower regimen, you know, the temperature and what type of soap? And uh, what kind of role does bacteria play in good, healthy skin? Okay. Those are, those are really good questions. Um, so I'll kind of... And I take, you know, the first one and we can kind of bounce yeah. ideas off of each other. So I think um, I think that there are a lot of things that can potentially show up on the skin. I mean, just kind of thinking through that, I don't, I don't know that I can give you a complete list, but some things to look for. You know, one thing... Um, if you have, if you develop a lot of itching of the skin, of course, it, it may be fine. It may be unrelated, but, you know, itching can often be, um, if there's not, particularly when there's no associated rash, just itching, that can be a sign of something going on um, internally. Um, you know, sometimes we do blood work or, you know, we want to make sure like your kidneys and liver is functioning okay if, you know, in, in the setting, in that setting. Um, other things, sometimes the, um, you know, with liver disease, you can develop, um, if your liver's not working properly, you can develop some like excess blood growths on the skin and then just the color of your skin or the yellow of the of the eyes you know can with if your liver's not functioning properly you can become jaundiced or which looks kind of yellow um you know there are there are more rare things that we see like eruptions of different types of rashes but you know those are really specific things that can be associated with different types of cancers but um but in general, I would say yeah. like nail changes, yeah. I would say, you know, yeah. there's various types of nail changes that can be related to um, internal issues, 
same with your hair, um, thin, brittle, uh, um, shedding hair might be associated with thyroid issues, um, swelling of the lower legs, or sometimes like pigment changes. If you have a bronze uh, kind of uh, pigment deposition in your lower extremities, that might be related to poor circulation. The only other thing I think of was GI stuff, like um, some of the inflammatory bowel diseases. You can get some weird rashes and celiacs. You can get some kind of some certain rashes that are associated. But there's uh, also, um, you know, we see perineoplastic rashes or rashes that may be related to underlying malignancy. And so um, that was a good question. There's definitely, you know, the the skin's kind of the window to the... (laughs) Uh, rest of what's going on in your body, and so um, there are there are several different uh, manifestations. I yeah. would say that can be related to underlying issues. You're usually probably going to see uh, something before your skin pops up, for the right. most part. Yeah, I read a book uh, ages ago that dealt with uh, lesions of the lower extremity, and and they had about colonic cleansing, and it cured, uh, you know, mostly cured a lot of that that was unable. to any other way yeah and then one of the other questions that you asked were um just routine skincare stuff and i yeah. think that's probably yeah. a really good question yeah um to kind of especially tr- as we transition into talking about sunscreen some um do y'all yeah, are there certain um, soaps and lotions and things like that that y'all recommend yeah you, and, and i know you asked about the temperature so depending on you know whether or not you have any skin issues but just kind of in general, uh, a very hot shower can be drying on the skin. And so particularly with our patients that struggle with dry, itchy skin, we recommend more of a lukewarm shower. Um, and again, for patients with sensitive skin, would recommend um, a, just overall a gentle skincare regimen, trying to avoid soaps or body washes that have a lot of fragrance um, that can be irritating to the skin. Um getting out of the shower and kind of patting dry, letting that moisture sit on your skin and immediately applying some kind of moisturizer like a lotion or a cream can help to lock in that moist, um, to help lock in that uh, moisture. Dr. Mobby's the expert on skin allergies. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I, I do a lot of testing um, for allergies and patients that are allergic to things that they're using on their skin. So um, generally, yes, I, I recommend um, all of those, particularly using um, fragrance-free, you know, um, more mild types of detergents. So laundry detergents that are fragrance-free um, are definitely beneficial and then not using um you know harsh cleansers and like the antibacterial soaps most of those are um are going to be more drying on your skin and then also just in general a lot of the body washes as opposed to just like the bar soaps the body washes tend to have more chemicals in them so if you if you do have like sensitive skin or you tend to um you feel like you break out when you use certain products using just like um, a gentle bar soap is actually better than using like a body wash for most people so um, and I totally agree with the getting out and then patting dry we say within five minutes actually like get your moisturizer on after Um, that's the most effective for locking in the moisture so and then a short we don't want you being like staying some people feel like they get relief in the shower but staying in the shower too long is another thing that can um, be drying to your skin so we say like short loop warm showers so really no more than like you know 10-15 minutes top so yeah but thanks for calling Craig hopefully that was helpful and uh, we appreciate your call 
So we talked some about the different types of skin cancers and what to be looking for. Can you tell us a little bit about what the treatment would be um, if you were to go to the dermatologist and get diagnosed with a skin cancer? And I know all of them could be, I mean, taken on my own is the biggest thing, but uh, can you explain a little bit how that does? And then I guess another question would be surveillance. So like if you were diagnosed with a skin cancer, how often do you need to keep following up with your dermatologist? Yes, uh, uh, those are great questions and, and common things that we encounter. So depending on the type of skin cancer and the depth, so some superficial skin cancers um, that are limited to the epidermis, which is just the very topmost layer of your skin, they can be treated even sometimes with topical creams that patients can apply at home. With the invasive types of skin cancer, the most common um, treatment approach is uh, surgical excision. So either your dermatologist will cut that out in clinic or depending on the type of skin cancer again and where it's located, you might be referred to a Mohs surgeon. Um, so Mohs, it's M-O-H-S. It's actually named after the surgeon who invented it. But it is a uh, we refer to it as a tissue conserving type of skin cancer surgery. And so for patients that develop skin cancers on perhaps their face or their hands, areas where we do not necessarily have the skin to take a wide margin around that cancer, um, a Mohs surgeon will take a smaller margin around that skin cancer. And while the patient waits, that tissue is processed, it's examined under the microscope. Um, the most surgeon can see if there is any skin cancer remaining and if there is where exactly to go back and cut. And so we're not removing any more tissue than is absolutely necessary to ensure that the entire skin cancer is um, is treated. And, you know, there's a 99% cure rate with that. It's, it's actually the, the highest cure rate of any of the treatment modalities that we use for skin cancer, but not all skin cancers will require that. Um, those that are on other areas like the trunk or the back, those might be uh, excised by your dermatologist just in, in clinic. Um, in regards to surveillance, it, again, it depends on um, what the type of skin cancer is and how many um, a, a person has had. I would say most patients that have a history of skin cancer would expect to be seen at least on a yearly basis, but some we see as often as every three or four months if they're at higher risk or have um, you know developed several skin cancers. So what if you have never been diagnosed with a skin cancer, but you need to just go get your skin checked? How often would y'all recommend doing that just for regular just skin checks? Yeah, I would say it's never a bad idea just to schedule an initial consultation with the dermatologist for a full skin check. Um, and then y'all can decide together. A lot of factors play into that patient's age, family history, um, history of sun exposure, whether or not there's been any tanning bed exposure, if they have multiple moles, if those moles are atypical looking. Um, some patients come in to see me for the very first visit, and if they've been protecting their skin and if there's no relevant family history and there's nothing that, you know, I'm really concerned about watching on a more frequent basis, I'll say it's fine. You know, come back and see me in two or three years and we'll do another skin check. So not every person needs to be seen on a regular basis. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and you know, um, 
we, I think the initial consultation as far as, I feel like a a lot of patients say like, well, what age should I do that? Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I think that, I think that varies, um, but I would never, I would, I think it's never a bad idea to start. And I I wouldn't say, um, I think probably like 30s to 40s is always kind of a good timeline um, for most people. Now, if you've had, um, if you are a really fair skinned um, person, like, you know, red hair, those kind of patients, like with a more fair skin type, um, those patients actually can develop skin cancer, you know, earlier. So may even need to be seen in their 20s. Or if you have a lot of moles, that's another reason to probably get seen um, earlier. And we even, you know, we'll do skin checks on kids that have a lot of moles. Um, so that's always, um, I think, reasonable as well, you know. And if the moles all look fine, like Dr. Cruz said, we can, you know, often just see you every few years. It's not something that you usually have to keep up as long as everything is okay. But um, but we are able to identify if there are any concerning factors that, you know, would be, um, that would warrant you needing to be seen closer so that we can monitor you more closely. So we've talked a lot about the different types of skin cancers, and we talked about some of the treatments, but now let's talk about prevention. Um, Unfortunately, you can't go back in time. (laughs) I wish I could take away all those years in the tanning bed, which just makes me cringe now. Um, But we can't go back in time. So now let's try to help our future generations and our kids and try to prevent any further sun damage. So um, sunscreen is the best way to do that. So tell us a little bit about the different types of sunscreen and what you should be looking for in your sunscreen. So um, generally, I always tell my patients, the best sunscreen is like the sunscreen that you're going to use. So, um, you know, just like a general rule, it's just that you, you want it to be a sunscreen that is, um, you know, easy to apply and one that you, you don't mind putting on and reapplying. So, but there are some things that I think are better than others as far as ingredients to look for in sunscreen. So um, in general, particularly for like the face and areas that are um, more sensitive, I really like the physical blockers better, which are... Um, which contain, you look for zinc oxide and titanium dioxide as the active ingredients. And now those um, sometimes can be the little bit wider Mm -hmm. sunscreen. So you may not, you know, want to, um, you know, use those all over. So I think it's fine to put those on like the areas like the the face, the neck, you know, the areas that are more sensitive. And then you can come back with like a spray or sunscreen that's easier to apply for the other areas. Um, And then also one thing I like for you know, for kids or, or adults too, or the um, protective, like the UPF, like protective clothing um, is also a really good option um, that you can use. And then it gives you less body area to have to cover with sunscreen um, because, you know, applying the sunscreen is one thing, but then you also have to reapply the sunscreen. So usually it all definitely needs to, a lot of sunscreens, most last 80 to 120 minutes. So it will vary. Um, but definitely at least every two hours needs to be reapplied. Um, or with any, like, you know, if they're swimming and you get a lot of water exposure or sweating, you may have to reapply sooner. And make sure you dry off before you reapply. Because yeah. I see that yeah. all the time. Like yeah. kids hop out of the pool and the parents just put it on them. I'm like, no. <laughs> it's like dripping down on the ground. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of patients, too, that will ask about the SPF number. Um, So generally, SPF 30 or higher is a a good number to look for. So that's going to block out about 97% of the sun's rays. Um, More, uh, I'd say SPF 15 is about 92%, less of a difference when you jump up to SPF 50, SPF 100. So um, some of those are going to be a lot more white when you apply them. So if you can find an SPF 30 that absorbs into your skin, that's that's a good sunscreen. Um, and another big thing is ensuring that you apply enough. And so a lot of times uh, 
folks just aren't applying enough sunscreen, so they're not getting that full protection. So they say about a shot glass full is what you need for your entire body. Um, you know, and, and I have a lot of patients that ask about sunscreen and moisturizers and in makeup, and, and that's fine. But generally, most folks are not using enough moisturizer or enough makeup to really get that full protection. And so, um, you know, that's just another important thing is to make sure you're actually applying enough sunscreen of, of whatever it is that you're using. Yeah. I saw um, my sister actually sent me this because neither one of my kids will wear a hat when we go outside. Mm -hmm. So we always have to put the sunscreen like in their head and especially like on their part, which is just gross. It gets greasy. It's nasty. But anyway, she sent me one that had a powder. Have y'all seen that? And is there any utility in that? There's a lot of new like scalp sunscreens, I would say, because I have the same issue with my kids, especially when they're swimming in the pool, you know, that they can't swim with a, a hat on very well. Um, but there's great sprays. There's there's great powders. There's a lot of scalp specific sunscreens, which is so I the think, powder is legit. I, I think it's legit. Okay. Yes, I really I actually really like the powders for um, even for like the face and stuff for reapplying. I just think they're they're easy, and mm-hmm. I find I find that my kids don't mind them as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually have the same ingredients, the same active ingredients. If you look at them, so um, they're just a little usually a little brush on powder. I will say backing what Dr. Cruz said. I think with the powder, just making sure that you actually have have powder on your brush when you're applying it though is the key to that so usually they have like a dispenser you have to click or twist or shake and just make sure that you actually have powder on the brush when you're applying it but yes i think they are i think they're great oh good that's good to know because i my sister actually sent it to me yesterday and i was like i've never seen powdered sunscreen i'm gonna have to ask y'all about that there's so many different types of of sunscreen now um you know I, I just almost feel like there's no excuse to not be able to find one that you like and that you can wear um I, I even have some sunscreen for my kids that comes out like a shaving uh shaving foam and yeah. like they love to put it on they think it's fun yeah um and it's an spf 40 i believe so yeah so another hot topic i guess in dermatology is acne um and it can affect anybody it can affect our kids and teens but it can also affect adults as well i have a, a lot of patients that um especially women in particular in their like 30s and 40s who struggle with acne um so it is it seems to not be a, pr- a problem that just seems to not go away as you get older sometimes so let's talk about acne can you t- kind of talk a little bit about why some people are more prone to it than others or kind of how it develops i guess um and then what are just some basic over-the-counter treatments that we can do for acne so um there's you know there are different types of acne and i i do think as far as like why it develops i think there's um you know there tends to be a little bit of a family history involvement um but we know that like you know teens just you start having um increased oil production which you know leads to you end up getting kind of clogged pores and um you develop comedones which are kind of the um first the first step in acne which are like the small little bumps um and then those can become infected you know and get secondarily inflamed and we get the larger kind of papules um the red kind of bumps are you know more painful bumps that sometimes you um you may get or notice and that becomes more of an inflammatory type acne and so the treatments vary depending on like the type of acne that you have at the time and so um if you're coming to a dermatologist we'll kind of target your treatment based on like the presentation you know what we're seeing at the time um the other thing i'll say like when you mentioned like oh this age group so i mean i think the most common age groups are like the teens and you know younger adults and then 
And then women, yes, in their like 30s to 40s often develop um, what we call hormonal acne. And that's actually um, kind of a different process and tends to affect women more in the lower part of the face and jawline particularly. And that's more hormonally driven. And so we we do we treat that differently as well. Um, you know, that we, we tend to target the hormones. So that may be like a medication by mouth or... Um, Sometimes, you know, younger patients can be put on like oral contraceptives that can help um, and different things like that. But, yeah, it depends on, you know, I think the the type of acne depends on the treatment. But for mild acne, there are a lot of things you can do, you know, over the counter as well that can be helpful, you know, when it, you know, starting early. I think um, just getting like a good, you can find many like acne um, cleansers. We like cleansers that have benzoyl peroxide in them particularly. Those are good things to look for um, that you can buy over the counter. Just as use like as a, um, a cleanser daily, usually once a day, twice a day, maybe too drying. And then um, there's a medication called Differin Gel that was previously a prescription, um, but has been over the counter for several years now. And that's a great option to start um, for an acne treatment that you can do yourself it um i would caution it it can be really drying so you want to only use like a really small amount of that if you um if you do that it only takes about a pea-sized amount for your whole face so um but that's a you know oftentimes if you even if you come to the dermatologist that would be you know something along those lines is what we would start you on so that can be a good thing to kind of start on your own and it's good for you to go in and start. I try to start telling my preteens at their checkups, like, wow. how often are you washing mm-hmm. your face? Um, because I don't, especially boys, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Like, Teenage boys, boys just never want to take a shower. <laughs> yeah. Every time they come in, their mom is always like, can you tell them they have to take a shower every day? Um, so just trying to go in and start that routine as soon as you can, too. Just getting in the habit of, like, getting a gentle face cleanser and let them wash. Um, and especially as they get into the, like, middle school and high school and if they play sports or mm-hmm. band and they're mm-hmm. outside in the heat um, and a lot of those uniforms you can get it not just on your face on your back too and your chest those are two pretty common areas too so it's just important to make sure you're showering and washing off and washing your face and starting those good habits like as soon as you can um, because we know that that will help them carry it into you know high school especially as that is typically when the acne tends to get a little bit worse yeah. so. and Dr. Mottby mentioned benzoyl peroxide um it comes in a variety of different strengths up to 10%, which is the highest strength available. But, you know, it can be a little harsh for the face, but it's a great option, like you mentioned, for those that struggle with acne on the body, on the trunk, chest, mm-hmm. back, shoulders. Um, that 10% benzoyl peroxide, keep it in the shower, wash off with it once a day, and that can really be helpful for that. So y'all mentioned the um, the benzoyl peroxide and the different, or either of those like spot treatments, because I feel like that's another thing a lot of teenagers will do. They'll like just, they'll have like one pimple pop up, you know, and they have something to do that day. So they'll just like, you know, put creams, all kinds of creams on it to try to make that go away. Um, are there yeah. any like spot treatments necessarily? Do these work for that? Or is this more of something that you need to do routinely? So with the, with the different gel, um, the... I would say that it works best as a preventative type treatment because it's really targeting those comedones, which is the kind of starter bump, as Dr. Bomb mentioned, for all other acne lesions. It really is serving to get in there and kind of unplug your skin, if you will. And so I would recommend patients that start to use that, apply it all over their face, um, not just to active lesions, because, again, it's more of a preventative type treatment. Um, there are benzoyl peroxide products that are available over the counter that are 
uh, marketed as a spot treatment. That might be fine if you do have one of those larger inflammatory bumps. Um, but for the most part, our acne treatments, we're, we're trying to prevent the acne from coming on as opposed to treating it once it appears. Yeah. Yeah. So in our last little bit, one other thing we wanted to talk about was um, warts and molluscum, because those are some common things that we see in kids, but we also see that in adults, too. Maybe not the molluscum as much, but warts we definitely do. Um, So let's talk about that. What causes warts, um, and what are some things that you can do at home and over-the-counter for them? So warts are caused by a virus, the human papillomavirus, um, of which there's several different strains. They're very common. Um, in, like Dr. McCloud mentioned, we see these in children all the way up to adults. Um, our goal in treating warts is really twofold. So we want to not only destroy the lesion itself, um, so we use various methods, creams or liquid nitrogen to um, you know, cause destruction of the lesion, but we also want to create an inflammatory response with the goal being that your body's own immune system will recognize that something is there that should not be there and also help to not only take care of that wart, but prevent any more from coming up. Um, there are over-the-counter treatments available. I-, I feel like the most common thing that my patients will come in and, and say that they've been using over-the-counter or the, the over-the-counter freeze sprays, which are not really worth anything, um, not worth your money or your time. If you're going to do something over the counter, I would do salicylic acid and that can um, uh, be available in up to a 40% strength. So that strong um, salicylic acid applied to the warts can be a helpful over the counter um, treatment option. Is there, I'd always heard too, to like rub it down or whatever before you put the medicine. Does that yeah, help at all? Absolutely. So um, we'll typically recommend when you get out of the bath or shower and it's still wet to get um, uh, like a pumice stone or something that you're only going to use for that wort. And like you said, to kind of file it down and then apply your topical salicylic acid. Yeah. And then molluscum, because I feel like that is a kid's thing that we see all the time, um, which is also usually caused by a virus. But can you explain a little bit about what molluscum is? And is there any treatment for molluscum? I feel like there's lots of voodoo things (laughs) Um, that, like, you can read over the counter. I mean, um, read online about different crazy stuff you can try for it. Um, But let's could y'all tell us a little bit about molluscum and what it is and then what are some treatment options for it? Yeah, so molluscum is also from a little virus. It's it's so so common. I honestly feel like almost all kids get it at this mm-hmm. point now. Um, at some at some point um, in childhood, and yeah, somebody once told me every kid is going to get it. It just depends on if they have one or two spots yeah. or like twenty spots. I really think so. that's true. I think some kids they're just so small that like they you really don't even notice them, and then others, um, you know, they'll they'll make more of a robust response to it and so it becomes more noticeable because usually even when I see siblings that you know one comes in and then we start looking or talking and then we realize like oh they actually all have them but these others are like so small that you know mom didn't even actually notice that that's what they were um but molluscum can be super frustrating when they when they um are noticeable because they're not harmful in the sense of like they don't do any like internal damage and they will eventually go away on their own but the frustrating thing is that can take like one to two years um and so they can actually kind of come and go for like up to two years um 
So that can, you know, as a parent, you know, especially if they're in in locations that are noticeable, that can be really frustrating. Um, there's not really like a magic treatment for, um, I don't think there's like a magic potion for molluscum. There's a lot of things you can, you know, kind of try. Um, the, the best thing for molluscum, if you are going to try and treat them, is really um, kind of the same principle as the warts. We really want to um, create an inflammatory response so that the body can recognize it and then clear it up. And so um, one thing... So we'll do is we'll often do um, you can you can try the salicylic acid, the same thing that you use on the warts. Um, and then we'll sometimes prescribe creams that are actually like irritating to the skin um, that you can apply to kind of try and irritate them Um so that hopefully then the body recognizes that it's like something something's there and it will clear it. And sometimes people will come in because they think the, the molluscum looks infected. Um, usually it's really not the case. It's actually that it's just in, inflamed, and that's actually a really mm-hmm. good sign. That means that it's probably about to go away, actually. Um, and that's the goal, really the primary goal of treatment is to, like, create that response. And so um, I feel like that's a lot of times people are like, oh, it's infected, but yeah. it's really not infected. It's just inflamed, which is a good thing. And if you give it a couple more weeks it's it's probably going to clear up completely mm-hmm. so yeah and when it's inflamed it does look infected it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah it does it definitely does and i mean you know it, it can rarely get infected but most of the time it's really not it's just inflamed so yeah. i think um i think just being aware of that can be helpful so so it can spread um molluscum can spread do warts spread too or like kind of yeah. kind of debunk some of those myths about warts because i feel like that is one thing so both are from a virus so i mean yes they can spread um and they you know um oftentimes kids kind of auto inoculate themselves honestly because they're um picking at them and mm-hmm. and then scratching mm-hmm. and so a lot of the spread is just you know um, from yourself, um, they can. I, I think you know, bathing siblings together is um, you know one way they're spread. I mean, but I also think you can drive yourself crazy trying to like separate your kids, you know, <laughs> from these things that can last so long. So you know, personally, I mean, you know, if my kids have had them, I don't, I don't really. Um, put that much effort into it because I just feel like they're all going to they're all going to get them at some, <laughs> at point, some point. Right? But yeah. um, but you know I do encourage if they're picking at them I'd encourage them not to pick at them like if they have warts um, definitely no biting. But there's a hand. lot of kids yeah. that like to bite their warts or try yeah, to chew them off. And you can all. get warts around your mouth, <laughs> and so um, that's something we really want to avoid. Other things I would say for like the warts, one thing I think I recommend for every um, one is when they're of age to get the HPV vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I feel like. Like it's um, it's a different strain of warts, but we can often see like some cross immunity there, so that can be really helpful. So I would always encourage patients to definitely um, take advantage of that. Um, and then as far as though like the molluscum, I mean, there's a lot of people that you know, or in warts, they think like zinc can help, and like there's some other oral apple cider vinegar. Yeah, I mean, and- I don't. There's not good data behind like really any of those things. So um, I mean, I don't think they're harmful to try, but I don't think that they're like particularly that much yeah like it's i hate always saying i think it's a virus (laughs) it'll get better with some time um especially like when moms come in and their kids have been coughing their heads off and are up all night but it is it's kind of the same thing it's just a virus i promise it'll get better and Um, with molluscum especially it's it's such a personal decision um and every parent is different and and how they choose or choose not to treat and 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 any option is okay um, because we have patients that come in and they may have 30 molluscum and the parent's still just fine, kind of letting it run its course, you know, which is fine. And then there's some that the kid may only have two or three and the parent wants them treated before they spread, you yeah. know, hopefully. So. Yeah. 
Well, I think this has been some great discussions. I really appreciate y'all coming on today. And thanks, everybody, for listening and calling in with your questions. Um, if there was something we didn't get to and you have questions, you can always send us an email to kids at mpbonline.org. Um, but I really appreciate y'all coming on and wear your sunscreen um, and hats, too. That's another thing. We didn't actually Robert mention that. Hat. Yes. Yeah. Make sure you wear your hat, too, which will help protect your head and your face, too. So I appreciate y'all coming on. Um, this has been Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. It's a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and Think Radio. And it's funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod. Join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.